Hi, I'm Shubhi Arun, and welcome to another episode of Through Another Lens, a sports and culture podcast. This week, Telegraph journalist Tim Wigmore joins me to discuss his new book, White Hot, the inside story of England cricket's double world champions that he co-wrote along with ESPN cricket voice Matt Rogner. The book delves into England's white ball revolution and how a country that for so long had neglected the format went down to pioneer a brand of cricket that became the envy of the world. Tim and I chat about why the 2015 World Cup was a turning point, how English cricketers came to embrace franchise leagues, the six-figure revolution in T20s, and why Kevin Peterson would have thrived in this era of English cricket. Uh Tim, welcome to Through Another Lens. So, firstly, congratulations on the book. Uh, I've just read it. It's it's just really engaging. It's comprehensive, packed with detail, but still so easily digestible. Um and I just kind of breezed through that in a couple of days. Right off the bat, first thing I want to ask you is how many minutes after Ben Stokes hit the winning run did you start writing this book? <laughs> like the turnaround time is quite ridiculous. Yeah, so we we were sort of having a, a vague thought of doing it before the final. Um, you know, we we kind of sensed that was a, a big moment. Um and then after that it it took about four weeks or so until we started 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 writing. Um, just sorting out everything with, with the publishers and stuff. But we, we had the idea, actually, um, from a, a little while out, from I think even before the semi-final with, it, with India, we were, we were kind of mentioning it as well. And then we realised it was a story we wanted to tell, and then up and, away, up and away we went. So obviously, like, a large part of the white ball revolution in England, it kind of really starts with the 2015 World Cup, right? Like, that was kind of like the epicentre of it all. Um, so why specifically was it, that loss was it the fact that it was bangladesh was it the fact that just the performances through that tournament what really triggered the inward reflection in english cricket after that so i think that tournament 2015 was really like a greatest hit of england's <laughs> mess ups in in world cups you know everything kind of came together at, at once we had kind of they had a kind of plan which they were, which was outdated to begin with, which they were kind of stumbling along with, and then they they panicked before the tournament as they often do. So we saw them change the captain, which was probably the right thing to do, but it was done far too late. And then they're they're changing their their team around, so they they change their team at, you know, on the on the eve of, of the first match. So you have James Taylor, who's been doing well at three, he's batting at six. You have Chris Rokes, who's been doing well with the new ball, he's suddenly a first change ball. You have all these kind of things at the end. So everything they've kind of been building towards that they abandoned, but the fact is that. Their their plans are kind of wrong anyway. So, um, we, they have this this kind of horrible moment, and and actually you see everyone can pick their kind of worst moment of that of that that tournament from an England perspective. And I think for me, and I think for some others as well, is actually the Sri Lanka game, not the Bangladesh game. The Sri Lanka game is interesting because England they basically have the, this plan of how they they're going they're going to bat, which is you know all geared towards building innings up and then accelerating game two eighty two ninety. In fact, against Sri Lanka, they they go better than that. They they clear three hundred and they're you know they're very confident they've got not just a pass score but an above score. And then Sri Lanka absolutely crews it when by nine 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 wickets and it's so easy. So it shows when even England at their best. Um, from the point of view with the bat, they're still miles behind where they need to be. You know, Joe Root talked about how that was a really painful moment, just seeing how far behind England were. And the Bangladesh defeat actually, by that point, England are a complete, complete mess. And actually, you know, everyone acknowledges had they kind of beaten Bangladesh, which of course they could have done, they lose by 15 runs. They probably got hammered in the quarterfinals anyway. Um, so the fact that England don't, don't reach the quarterfinals is, re- is a real nadir. And it's, 
yeah, it, it shows how far behind England are. And you have guys like Andrew Strauss, who becomes an important part of this story. So he, he's watching on, you know, as a, as a commentator. And he said he's very, very angry seeing the same mistakes England kept on making in previous World Cups being repeated and, and England basically getting further and further behind. And because it's so bad, um, it criticizes how far off they are. And of course, the other, the, the kind of great irony, which is that England have just changed the schedule of the Ashes um, be- just before this to avoid having um, an Ashes immediately before a World Cup, which is always the problem, the problem before. So England actually have, in theory, a very good, a very good lead up in terms of they're just playing white ball cricket that winter until the, the World Cup. So they have six months focus on and, and it doesn't make any difference at all. So all these sort of greatest hits come together and you have England very much with a with a bowling attack of, of four seamers bowling just over 80 miles an hour and an orthodox off spin. Um, it's, you know, there's no variety there there whatsoever. And yeah, you, you, everyone can see how the, the game's evolving in that tournament and England is just not really part of the conversation at all. An English attack without any variety and only fast medium. Uh, thank God they stopped that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Imagine, <laughs> imagine it makes you, it makes you try to think. Obviously, like a big reason for that exit, one of the reasons put down was the 40 over format, which was being played um, in domestic cricket in England at that time. And, uh, but there is like a duality to it, right, as well, because on one hand, uh, England players just aren't used to playing 50 over cricket and how to play it. But, when you look at the next generation of players coming through, right, which you document in the book about the likes of players like Butler, like Jason Roy and uh, Besto, they kind of benefited from playing the 40-over format. So th- there is a bit of a duality to it, right? Yeah, so I guess one of the interesting things, you know, any sort of structural changes, they always actually takes a bit of a time lag effect until we see whether you know, what actually happens. So based in 2009, um, the counties decide we're not going to play 50 over anymore. We're just going to play 40 over in, in county cricket. So from 09 to 13, this has actually changed before the World Cup in 15. So from 2009 to 2013, 40 over is the only uh, one-day form of cricket uh, that that's, that happens. Um, and then when England get knocked out in 2015, you know, Paul Downs, the managing director, says, you know, it's no surprise we've only been playing 50 over cricket for um, a single year in, in county cricket. But actually, if you think of historically England's failings, including in 2015, they were actually basically batting too slowly, too conservatively. And and actually what 40 over cricket does, it kind of artificially corrects that um, in English cricket. Um, and it needs to be artificially corrected because of probably a mindset thing, but also because the pitches historically, uh, you know, had encouraged quite conservative play in England. So actually by, by shaving off the overs, you get a uh, more adventurous batting style. And what's interesting is that people are recognising the, the new generation even before the World Cup. So we see, I think, it was Graham Swan on Test Match Special in 2014, um, winning in the kind of, you know, the last days of that ODI captaincy. You know, he's talking about all these exciting players coming through. You know, you have Morgan, you have Hales, you have have Jason Roy, um, jo- Josh Butler. So you, there is actually, so something is kind of stirring. And I think what's really frustrating is England's reluctance to embrace it. And um, the example of the World Cup, probably stands out is of is of Alex Hales. So Hales, by this point, he's already been ranked the number one batsman in the world in T20 international cricket. He's scored a brilliant century, actually, in the 2014 T20 World, World, World Cup. And yet he's still not, not trusted. He's only brought in to the ODI World Cup for the fifth game, the Bangladesh game, actually. He's batting at number three out of position. So England actually, some of these players are beginning to get ready, but they're just not, not trusted, you know. And the fact is, at every this kind of continues the trend of of England. Every World Cup, they have 
um, they have too many of these kind of anchor type players. So we see again with, with Ian Bell in, in that tournament, you, you don't necessarily need him and Gary Balance and Joe, Joe Root even, who's a bit, a little bit more, 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 more dynamic actually. But so you have, you do have this new generation playing in a different way. Um, and I suppose the interesting thing is 40 over, which is seen as part of the problem actually turns out to be a big part of the solution. Mm. So uh, it, it's ultimately like a lot of the past, I would say like six, seven years in English cricket have been about change, right? And a lot of it has been about how at times they were resistant to change, right? Where there was always the focus on creating test cricketers, right? That was the ultimate goal. And then I guess in some ways in, after 2015, there is the almost like an overcorrection, right? So you're going completely to the other end now that, no, we're going to create, you know, the most aggressive, the most attacking style of play there is. Um, And I find it funny because now we've reached a point where, again, you have uh, someone like Ben Stokes coming out and saying, oh, you know, we need to save test cricket, right? That is the messaging, which is, again, coming back out. Um, So ultimately, I guess that kind of got me thinking, is a playing style like basketball for instance is it in some ways the easiest way to manage the white and red ball teams do you know what i mean because ultimately you're trying to create a similar type of cricketer yeah so what what it's a kind of response to is in for the first time really in their history having a much better supply of white ball players than red ball players you know we've seen that not just in the two world cups england have won we also saw that in that COVID series against Pakistan in 2021, England had a 17-man squad that was all all rolled out through COVID. They had a second string, um, and they were played not just in the same in the same successful way in terms of winning. They were playing the same style as well. You know, we see with with Phil Salt taking down Shahina Freed in the first over exactly the style of of Jason Roy, for example. So, actually, it, it's been such a profound cultural shift and a really remarkable one in English cricket that you're left with a huge an oversupply of, of white ball white ball batting talent, and England have. England had gone through a long period of picking the the next in line guys who play in the traditional way in Red Bull cricket. You know, they've had Rory Burns, Dom Sibley, Hasib Hamid, and so on, and none of them had done particularly well. So, actually, in many ways, for all the kind of talk of a kind of revolutionary philosophy, I think basketball was actually born a weakness in many ways. You know, it's actually England don't really have the players to be playing like Steve Smith and Marnus, like Abishane do for Australia, say. So actually they need to, they've been playing conventionally and very badly, remember, you know, one win in 17. So it was a say, okay, we need to do something different. And we do have players who can play in this this different way. So it's about trusting and liberating those those kind of, those, those white ball skills and bringing them to bear in, in test cricket. And, and yeah, if, if you had guys who were all... <laughs> All batting, you know, in the same way that England's had had, you know, in 2011 when they won the Ashes down under and became, you know, test number one team in the world. That race from middle order, um, England wouldn't necessarily have needed to to revert to such a radical new, new strategy. But because, you know, they, they really had, they thought they had no 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 alternative basically because they've been doing the conventional thing and it's been very unsuccessful doing so. Do you think English cricket is resistant to change? Do you think that the path Morgan and Strauss had to go through? Do you think that there was acceptance around it that yes you know you have a clean slate go ahead do it or because was there pushback from the media from the players themselves or you know just from some of the wider cricketing fraternity 
So this is this is what's so brilliant for England about the World Cup in 2015 because it's so so bad that no one can be in denial anymore. So you have things like the lack of English players in the IPL, which had always been such a sore point before, for example. But England England you know point out and find out very simply, you know, 38 out of the 44 players who played in the semi-finals of that World Cup 2015 had had IPL experience. So they say, and only ones in the squads who had done was Morgan and Robert Papara, who was only a squad player anyway. So that's a clear example where they actually. Actually, rather than resist, resisting this thing, we need to embrace it. So, in those sorts of, in that sort of way, it, it does help because there is this cultural conservatism to to overcome in English cricket, and just simply how bad England are helps. The other thing that's really, really important that we talk about in the book is the fact this is Andrew Strauss who's leading this change. You know, Andrew Strauss was basically the most successful English Test captain since the 1950s. So, for him to actually be the one who's who's leading the changes to the benefit of the white ball game is so, so important because no one can say, you know, he doesn't care about test cricket or whatever. It's actually, he has that, that credibility. And I guess because, because of his test credentials, he can kind of bring the, the more conservative establishment voices on, on side as well. So that, that's a really important point, point too. And, you know, he, he gives this, this mandate to, to Owen Morgan because, you know, Morgan initially thinks he might be, you know, he was only just appointed before the World Cup. He thinks he might be sat because they were so bad in the World Cup. In fact, Strauss has the leadership to say, actually, you know, Morgan clearly is the best, the next best in line. There's talk of Joe Root, whatever, becoming ODI captain. But actually, Strauss can see Morgan is the guy with the vision, the single-mindedness. And actually, what's very important is that England have often used the ODI captaincy as a sort of way of preparing someone for the test captaincy. Actually, the fact that Morgan, by this point, is not playing test cricket and he doesn't, doesn't really come close to playing it again that's actually really important. So the ODI team, the T20 team, that is his whole whole focus. That also helps helps as well. So it, for the first time, it's not really a sideshow. And again, you see that with the point of the new new head coach after Peter Moores is, is sat. That is Trevor Bayliss, and it's 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 the first time they have had a head coach of of all formats who's appointed primarily. I would argue for their. Um, track record in white ball cricket, you know, basically got a solid record in first class game, but actually, it's his IPL success is is crucial to him him being appointed, um, and he he's he's a man who a lot of his expertise is in, in white ball cricket. So yeah, suddenly, you know, white ball cricket is is not is not peripheral. And of course, the other thing that's crucial is that the World Cup, just again, this is just coincidence, but the World Cup is actually held in England in twenty in four years time. So England are thinking we cannot be as shambolic again at home you know that would be a complete embarrassment they recognize the chance of a world cup to do kind of a to do to do a broader good good for the game and and, and develop the game so it's, it's this flagship event and it means that even though you have a world cup and ashes summer you know a double a double whammy in the same summer actually the world cup is not the peripheral event you know england are actually planning i would argue from longer out for the world cup than for the ashes which again is the first time it's ever really happened in english cricket and I guess with Andrew Strauss, I guess his test legacy gave him that heft when it came to decision-making and kind of moving parts around. But he also lent quite a bit on his failures with the white ball as well, right? And he kind of really went and reflected on that. And like, you know, he's conducting research into, you know, how, what is the right way to play, like really statistical deep dives. Um, In many ways, a really forward-thinking approach, right? A very modern approach, which at the time you didn't see too much of in, forget English cricket, in cricket in general, I guess, at that time. Yeah, so you see the history of kind of World Cup swing and from 92, England are always kind of a cycle behind on the tactics and stuff. And, you know, you see this with 
Paul Downton saying he was surprised about the influence of T20 in the ODI game in 2015, for example. Um, so, so the sort of research project is important because you're it's actually looking at what's gone to World Cups and how you've been successful in the past. It, it, it finds you know some obvious things, some less obvious things. For example, it shows that the, the, the role of batting tends to be more important than, than bowling. Um, it shows basically you can't win an ODI World Cup unless you're consistent in the top top two or three. And actually, generally, it's run by the best team in a cycle, which. So again, you can't just kind of hope you'll be right on the night, which would be England's previous attitude. And also England are looking not just at the game as it has been played, but at the future. So remember, so we have these new these new new fielding restrictions have come in around this time, which is basically to have only four men out. The, the crucial part from England's point of view is only four men out allowed out between Lovers 11 and 40, which basically means, you know, you have an extra extra boundary option as, as, a, as a batter there. Um, and England realised that's actually completely aligns with their idea of a more audacious approach anyway. So suddenly England are not uh, actually behind the curve. They're, they're ahead of it. And actually we talked about the, the, the Pro 40. So this there's some similarities with the rules in, in Pro 40 cricket as well. And, and that kind of being comfortable with actual, actual, that level of risk as well. So suddenly England are thinking, okay, let, let's plan for for a different a different way of, of doing things, and it, it's pretty clear that you need to be very attacking with the bat. You also need uh, variety with the ball, and a wrist spinner is, is a crucial part. Is a crucial crucial part of that. So, Adil Rashid, who Strauss by his own admission, he tells us, you know, he actually captained him terribly. He says when he, he was England captain, but yeah, they they all they recognise that Rashid is is central to England's England singing. It's essential to to kind of back him properly, and he becomes basically a permanent fixture in, in, in the side. So we see actually England have gone from playing a very kind of staid form, very conservative form to suddenly it's, it's, it's you know, the, the flick is switched overnight and the, the switch is flicked overnight. And you see that the first four ODI against New Zealand, they score 400, um, which is which is a remarkable shift. And obviously it's not, it's not as simple as that afterwards. But I think the fact that that first series goes so well means there's complete, 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 complete kind of buy-in and acceptance. Um, of the need for change and and a determination that England will not be be swept off course the first time things go a little bit awry as has again happened in a lot in the past. Uh, you know, you bring up Rashid like that part of the book was one of my favorite sections, just about how Morgan handled him. You know, and you know, just simple things that he was very you know like clear that he's not going to express his like his emotions. He's not going to throw his cap. He's not going to kick the ground. You know that he's going to remain very level-headed when it comes to dealing with someone like Rashid and giving him kind of the freedom to experiment, to try what he wants and not really trying to... The way I saw it was he, he didn't try to box him, right? He just let him be um, and kind of attempt what he wants. And that is what he'd never had in his career. And I honestly say that Morgan changed that. And even if I look at Adil Rashid in the IPL, uh, either he's not picked or when he's picked, he's either picked for a couple of games, dropped. Like, the IPL captains haven't figured out how to deploy him in a right way either. And so I just thought the way Morgan handled Adil Rashid and kind of oversaw his development was, it just told you all you needed to know about his style of captaincy, right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, and he's so, you know, we see this moment when he's hit in New Zealand series, he's hit for 30 in the penultimate over. Um, but Morgan keeps Rashid on for the literally the very final over of the innings and he, and he gets a wicket and he, he builds a cheap final over and, and he, and he, he walks off Rashid and he actually, he, he looks like he's, he's very, very happy. He's, he's, he's done his job. He's, he's feeling, feeling accepted. So you see that whole new level of backing that, 
you know, in, yeah, Rashid is there as a weapon to, to take wickets. Again, we had, you know, James Treadwell, Moeen Ali were the, the spinners in the World Cup 2015 are very much use quite conservative ways as finger spinners. I think now that they have a whole new approach where, because we talked about how you have to, you can go hard with the bat in those middle overs. It also means as a bowling team, you know, that could happen too. So you have to find a way of taking wickets. Uh, Liam Plunkett, his kind of bowling in the middle, kind of cross him into the pitch, lots of bounces. That's that's a very important part of that as well. So not looking to contain, actually thinking about of, of taking wickets. One of the things Strauss and Morgan were, you know, always encouraged players to go play in the franchise T20 league, right? That was something which was another big shift from before where, you know, players were told that even if you have to miss Lions duty, if you have to miss that, that's okay. You go get that experience and because we know that will help. Um, so I remember a couple of months ago, I was talking to um, Dan Weston, uh, who works at Kent, uh, and I was kind of working on this piece about why aren't there any English IPL Hall of Famers, you know, like players like an A.B. de Villiers or someone like Sunil Narayan. Maybe Josh yeah. Butler is getting there, but there is really no one else. Yeah. Um, and we were having a discussion about Cause, that. Because they haven't played enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he said one of the things yeah. is the slow embrace. He said they were so late to come and that kind of, for franchises as well, that became a thing that you know, English players will come and they will leave off like four or five games. Why spend all that money uh, and rather invest that in domestic yeah, talent? Yeah, and, and they'd miss they, Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they'd miss the playoffs and you always had the sense that, you know, if they were going in, didn't really want, want them to be there as well. So they, you'd never have the buy-in um, from the ECB about this. And of course, one of the players who was always very, like always pushing to play in the IPL was Peterson. And, uh, you know, you write in your book how in your conversations, so many people spoke about how good Peterson would have been if he had, you know, played in this era. Uh, what, what were those conversations like? What did you hear about Peterson? Yeah, it was interesting. It's obviously because he, he was big on playing the IPL and everyone was saying, oh, no, no, don't do that. But actually, he, he was vindicated in, in that sense. And I think the whole the whole environment would have been a lot more suited to his, his gifts now. You know, they, they would have been completely... Yeah, completely liberated to play in the way that he he wanted, um, rather than having this slightly kind of hands tied behind your back feeling, which I think a lot of English players looking back on, you know, we talked with Nick, Nick, Nick Knight, for example, who was, you know, really fun ODR player for England, played 100 games, and he said he always had this little little bit of kind of playing within himself and stuff, and he would have loved to have played in, in this area, for example. So I think a lot of, actually a lot of former former English players do you know they actually are quite jealous of the environment that's been created you know we there's a very interesting um, comparison which you talk about between Ali, Ali Brown and Jason Roy you know two very attacking openers for the Surrey um, and um, Ali Brown was just never played more than, than four games in a row for England even though he, he scored two double centuries in, in domestic um, in one day cricket for Surrey um, and so he's never given this backing we see with Jason Roy he literally gets out to a golden duck on, on debut and has a really a torrid, torrid start and he, he's backed and backed. Again, we see, actually, we, we talked to Alex Hells and Jason Roy. So they, after the World Cup 2015, England have, they have 14 games left and ODIs left in, in the year. And they're both told they will play all of them. Um, and Hales, you know, and Roy talked about how that was so, so liberating. It, it, it meant that they could actually play in the way that they they wanted to and they were good for, done for their counts. I think what you've seen again and again in the past, I'm going to say, in the kept on making was you pick players who often have been 
very successful playing aggressively for their counties. You say, go and play in the same way. Everything's great. But then the player would, by playing in a high risk, oh, you're going to fail. Sometimes a player would play in a couple of games, then he'd be, be dropped. And it's like, you, you create it's so, so damaging for that. And the, it was so important, the kind of continuity of selection, because that way, I think what you find is England sticks their principles when they're losing as well as when they're winning. So it's very easy to say, you know, we want to play aggressively and stick to that when you're winning. But actually you have some some really some horror shows as well. You know, there's this game against Africa before the Champions Trophy 2017 where they they lose six wickets in the first first five overs, I think. And it, it's, you know, horrendous. But actually the mess in the dressing room is actually, yeah, let, let's keep on going with the way we're playing because we're doing doing really well. So England, they don't have this sort of plan. They have a a kind of an eye on eyes on the prize and the longer term and, and they don't overreact to results, which had always been the one of the issues that England had had, had faced before. And obviously I think a big reason for that shift as well was uh the financial side of things, right? How the financials involved with white ball cricket made it such a lucrative option. Um and I remember once Deepak Chahar in an interview he spoke about it. Uh you know, when he was talking about how some of the young players who today come through, like, you know, on debut, they are like, I think he was talking about Ishan Kishan, how he had six on debut, like in the first ball. And he said a lot of that is because they have this freedom because they've already played tournaments like the IPL. So they know that they aren't going to lose. If they, Even if they lose their place in the squad, they're financially secure as well. Um, right. So, and I found that interesting how that the financial side of things ties into how you play the game. Um, so how do you think that when ECB took over white ball contracts completely in 2020, what impact has that had and will it continue to have? So actually, I think, I think the, the real significant change happens kind of earlier and lower down the, the chain, if you like it, really, if you think of the T- T20 blast comes in 2003 and as that becomes kind of taken more seriously by the time who we call the golden generation of players are, are emerging in the early 2010s, really, that, you know, Sam Billings says the first fixture you looked for, as this was a Kemp player, was, you, was you know, the way game at the Oval in, in the blast. And so so suddenly the, the white ball game has become really important for, for counties more than it had, had before. It's therefore become more important for counties in how they they give, give their contracts and the financial re- re- rewards for, for players. So actually you, you have a situation where where players are actually feeling like financially for the first time, really it's worth prioritizing in some cases, the white ball game over the, the red ball one. And then to add to this, you have the way the English summer works. You have all these in, in your off season, you don't really have chance to play in first class cricket overseas, but you have plenty of chance to play in franchise leagues overseas. So suddenly it's actually maybe unless you're a test cricketer for England, if you're not in that, in that bracket for everybody else, it's actually the the white ball game where it's it's actually a safer safer bet financially. So you actually see players spend a lot of time focusing on their their skills in white ball cricket. So you see actually is a kind of financial logic really for players in and what they're in what they're doing and thinking about. And this this is just this kind of adds more impetus to the whole 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 sort of series of changes that we see in English cricket because um, no longer are players kind of. Thing like they're penalised or look, look, look down upon, really, as been before for being seen as a, a white ball specialist. And actually, because of Morgan as the captain, no longer is the the tag of white ball specialist into over specialist a kind of way of looking down on people as it had had before. You know, it's actually something to to be proud of, really. Yeah, 
Uh, I remember Reese Topley in, I guess, a recent interview, he'd spoken about how he said, when I started out, my dream was, you know, to play in as many Ashes series as I could. And he said, now it's into play as, as many IPLs as I can. So I guess that kind of really signifies kind of the shift which is taking place, I guess, in the players coming through today. I see, I see Liam Livingston is like the quintessential English modern T20 player today, you know, like a player who really cut his teeth in the franchise leagues, you know, he played a lot in the T10s as well, um, you know, and his six hitting ability, uh, he obviously, you know, you. I, I wanted to ask you about that because you mentioned that in the book, how the six hitting revolution in T20 cricket is a bit like the three point revolution in the NBA. Um, so yeah. talk me through that. So with Livingston, one of the interesting things is um, he had this meeting with with, uh, with England and Mo Bobat in 2019, where he's sort of a fringe test player discussing his development. And they decided that he's actually better off not going on an England Lions tour that winter playing first class cricket. He's better off playing in as many franchise leagues as possible. So that's an example that we wouldn't have seen before of England actually thinking strategically about their players and actually being happy for their players to prioritise the... the uh, white ball games basically um and so we see actually england are england are really thinking about how they can develop their, their depth in, in white ball cricket what, what, what is it specifically about like six hitting which has changed now where it isn't seen as like there's kind of i feel a greater understanding of the craft that goes into it than when before it was just seen as uh something just about power and like slogging you know i feel like there is a very clear way it is being kind of ingrained into training and into like teams and their cultures now yeah that's right so i think we look one example is range hitting which um was actually first introduced to the squad by by paul Paul collar back when he was a player in the 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 the, the ipl um but yeah england have kind of given a lot of thought to to six hitting it's partly it's a kind of a cultural thing about you know if you're not telling off players for being caught on on the ropes, actually, that actually encourages them to go for it more. So that helps as well. But you know, seeing and they do play pay a lot of attention to sitting in 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 training. And yeah, there is you know they've worked with Julian Wood, who's basically a coach who specialises in, in power hitting. He's done work with the England Lions, for example. Um, and and essentially, with in the case of Livingston, um, it was some coaching work done by Paul Collingwood, Marcus Triscothic, who basically spotted that if Livingston uh, had his legs a little bit narrower together in his stance, he'd be able to, to get to get more, more more power through his shot. So that's an example of kind of of good coaching the whole system being in in sync there. Um, and actually, we see actually, yeah, England England players who didn't really used to be at all famed for their ability to clear the ropes. You know, now they're they're pretty much as good as anyone in the world at, at doing that. Do you think that you know everything which has happened over the past few years, like? If England didn't win the World Cup in 2019, how does that change the trajectory? How does that change the way we see players like Owen Morgan today? And does England still go on to, I guess, win the next World Cup? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. So I think the I think the building blocks, the kind of cultural shift had all happened and therefore was was pretty embedded in English cricket. But clearly you wouldn't have had that inspirational moment of actually lifting that world cup at, at lords um I, th- I don't think i don't think that much would have changed if they hadn't they hadn't won it but but perhaps you know those those big moments in 2022 you know that maybe there was something where the actual belief of having having won a world cup before a couple of years before 
where that where that 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 came in. Um, but actually, in a, in a weird sense, the the kind of revolution was was so swift. I think it was it was pretty ingrained in cricket before. I don't I don't think they hadn't won. What subsequent years would have been all, all, all that that different? I guess we'd be looking at a missed opportunity. And in terms of England's legacy as, as a team, actually, you know, arguably there's still a belief now, actually, which is interesting that England have still maybe should have got should get another. There should be more in this team in terms of they won two World Cups. There's actually a feeling that maybe this team is so good they they should be winning winning three or four in their in their cycle. So we have a, another chance this year in India, the ODI World Cup, and then next year T20 World Cup. You know, I think if England so with either of those, there would actually many at the ECB would say actually with all the talent at their disposal, mm. they're possibly you know one trophy sh- short of where the, where they should be from this from this era. Um, I can't remember now who it was in the book who compared them to the Aussie team in the mid two thousands, uh, and maybe saying that they're greater. Uh that felt like a bold claim. Uh, would you? How did you feel about that? Like when I read that, I kind of like not yet. Yeah, no, 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 we do talk about this in the book and, and you say the Australia team, they won, you know, 34 straight matches in a World Cup, a DI World Cup is just phenomenal. So you think, I think England are arguably or very close to being probably the, the second best white ball team of all time, which is an incredible thing to be saying about an England team, you know, given that that awful record they, they've had for, for so long in white ball cricket. And... Um, I, th- I think that Australia team are still, even if they were to win India, I still think the Australia team would would still be clear. But England are uh, b- b- building a hell of a case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, it was also interesting for me to read this book during this this Ashes series when there's so much talk about baseball and England's identity shift, and it was just an interesting. Like there were so many parallels I found, which is natural because obviously Morgan got a lot of his ethos from talking to McKellen. Um, but I guess the one thing which kind of a lot of the way this Ashes series has been shaped has been that it is kind of like a a referendum on baseball, right? Whether this works or it doesn't work. And I guess after reading this book and kind of you realize that if you have to make such a big shift, it takes time. That in some ways I, I was thinking that, you know, that England, it's a process which started in 2015 really like it came to fruition completely in 2019, right? It was a four-year cycle. Uh, here you have um, this new style which England play with, which began last year, and you already have the ashes. So in, in one way, it's kind of unfair to judge the success. Like it's too soon, right? Whether it works in the ashes or not. Yeah, in some way, but I guess the, the big, big difference is the age profile of the, of the two different teams. You know, England and white ball cricket of 2015, was a, it was a young team. Very very young team. There's a, a generational shift. Actually, basketball, ironically, is is partly about getting the best of the of the last of the old generation. So you actually have a you know you England's England's opening bowls this series. You know the combined age of seventy six, I think it is. Um, you know you have a series of players well into their their thirties. So that's that's an interesting difference. And in that sense, actually, what will be really interesting to see is in a year or two doing and keep on producing players to play in a similar way. You know, actually England, are, they have actually learned um, from the white ball revolution in terms of trying to inculcate this cultural ch- shift. So it actually is detectable in county cricket as well. So we had the, you know, the, the meeting between McCullum and Stokes and the county directors of cricket early, early this year, for example. So there is a, a real attempt to ingrain this sort of way of playing, but clearly if the team is not is not winning anymore, then that makes the case that you should play in this way a little bit harder as well. Mm. Um, 
And I don't think, so in that sense, it's a slightly more complicated task than what faced the, the, the white ball team because of the age profile and, and simply because England, although they had a, a very bad run in test cricket immediately before Brendan McCollum took over, they had offered me a pretty good test test side the last 15, 20 years. That hadn't been true in white ball cricket at all. So it was, in a sense, easier for England to uh, to make those shifts in white ball cricket. It's so important in England just had such a conservative identity, if you like, before the World Cup in 2015. So it, it was so clear that there needed to be su- such a, a big shift. And actually you have in Morgan a very talismanic figure and a very, very powerful figure as well. You know, he is, he's sort of a, a player coach as well. So in that sense, he he's kind of instrumental in this this whole this whole process. And he he creates something that clearly, as we've seen, has out- outlived his own career. Yeah. Um, which I suppose is testament to actually the, the depth of change that it, it's, it's got through it's got through now a you know change in head coach from the world cup winning coach and a change in captain and actually there's been no sign of things showing down so that is that is a proof that these these changes have have endured they've got past that sort of first first little space spell of being about a few a few individual people it's actually it's gone it's gone deeper now yeah i guess it's like this identity they kind of all kind of revolved around has kind of become a part of English culture now, right? Like English white ball specifically. Like I can't imagine them playing any other way right now. Yeah, we talked to Sam Baines, you said you said there's no 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 there's there's no turning back now. Um I think it is is so ingrained and it's the weighing and play now is, you know, even if you see yeah you know, under the England nineteens or whatever, it it's a whole different different a different approach. So the the white ball game is is not is not not going back. So England have I kind of always like it to what Arsenal did under Wenger when he took over. You know, they went from one 0 to the Arsenal, very boring side, and suddenly they were playing the most yeah. attacking, adventurous football. It was a bit like that with England and white ball cricket. Awesome, uh, Tim. Thank you so much for joining me on through another lens, uh, and thank you everyone for tuning into this. I'm gonna add a link to the book in the show notes, uh, and I urge everyone to get it. It's a really engaging, really amazing book. Um, yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Shibby. Cheers.